Apple presents events at the Apple Store. All right, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome this evening's guest moderator, literary editor at The New Yorker, David Hagland. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for coming. Uh, I am really pleased uh, tonight to be introducing Alexander Heyman and Velibor Boshevich, who are Alexander, who I'll be calling Sasha, because that's what everybody calls him, and, uh, and Veba. Sasha and Veba have known each other for, I think, 30 years. Um, they, Sasha is a writer. Uh, he's a winner of many awards, including the MacArthur Genius Grant. And uh, he and Veba previously collaborated on a book called The Lazarus Project, which is fantastic. Uh, tonight, we're talking about My Prisoner, which is a new ebook that brings together an essay that uh, Sasha wrote and an art installation by Veba. Um, so without further ado, please join me in welcoming Alexander Heyman and Velibor Borshevich. Thank you. Good evening, everyone. So I thought we could start uh, tonight by having uh, Sasha read the beginning of the essay, and then we'll uh, talk about where it came from. All right. All of my life, I'd been dreaming of going to a World Cup soccer game. But the day before the opening game, Germany versus Bolivia, of the 1994 World Cup was to be played in Chicago, where I lived, I boarded a plane to London. My friend Zrinka paid for my ticket to England as I was employed by Greenpeace at the time and was thus dead broke. For the same reason, I couldn't begin to afford a World Cup ticket, let alone a TV. Besides, none of my closest friends were anywhere near Chicago. Many of them, in fact, were busy being in Sarajevo under siege. And watching the World Cup by myself was as depressing as eating alone. I hadn't seen, I hadn't seen Zrinka since before the war. She had left the siege in September 1993 and ended up in the United Kingdom, having followed a Brownian refugee trajectory by way of Croatia, Italy, Switzerland, and Turkey. Now she split her time between London and Birmingham and stayed, I'm sorry, I stayed with our friends Gusha and Dushka who lived in a damp basement off Portobello Road. It was not a homey place. It vaguely smelled of rotten potato. The uneven ceiling sagged in one corner where Gusha and I had to slouch lest we scrape off the top of our heads. The only window was at the street level and it was never open. Gusha worked as a bartender at a London club and came back home late. So I'd wait up for him to watch the late live broadcast of World Cup games, never really switching to the local clock. While Dushka slept, we'd get excited about the game. We were watching, screaming and whisper, muffling our high fives, smoking all along as if possessed. After the game, we'd stay up to drink, talk, and suck on cigarettes some more until the room was so full of smoke we could barely see Dushka unflappably asleep on the bed. We'd go to sleep at the crack of dawn, our mouths scorched with talking and nicotine. Zrinka often enjoyed us to listen to Let Love In, Nick Cave and The Bad Seeds' most recent album, and talk incessantly about the war in Bosnia, which was at its bloodiest. Those nights and days were stretched between despair and euphoria, between hysterical laughter and random outbursts of fury. We often talked about our friend Weber. His friendship was one of the many things we shared who was still in Sarajevo under siege. We missed him, felt guilty, wondered if he had any chance to watch the World Cup or listen to Let Love In. We recalled our common past, our parties and projects, our demolished previous life, unimaginable without Weber. 
the desperate, angry elephant in the befogged London basement was Weber's absence and the distinct possibility that it might never end. It ended. Thank you. Here's Weber. Thank you, Sasha. So this essay uh, describes a period in, in, in both your lives during the, the war in Bosnia. Uh, Sasha, you were living in Chicago. Weber, you were still back in, in Sarajevo. And the central event in, in both the essay and also in the uh, art installation that you made, Weber, was uh, the point at which you were drafted, Weber, you were drafted into the uh, Bosnian army and your father was arrested uh, by the, the Bosnian army and, and made a prisoner. Um, years later, you decided, uh, if I'm not mistaken, to, to revisit it, um, to revisit that moment and specifically um, a moment when someone came to you and, and said, come with me, basically. Um, and offered the opportunity to, to see your father, um, but under very particular circumstances. I wonder if you could just describe that event a little bit uh, uh, for the audience. Well, good evening, everyone. Uh, as soon as the siege started, my father was, uh, my father was a low-ranking officer in Yugoslav army before the war, so he was at his uh, posting where he worked for 10 years prior to the war in some warehouse near Sarajevo. So he was very quickly, weeks into the, the war, taken prisoner by, uh, by the Bosnians. Uh, I was in Sarajevo with the rest of the family and very quickly I was drafted in the Bosnian army just like most of the people around us. And we really didn't know much about each other for a couple of years and uh, until uh, at one point, uh, International Red Cross got the access to the to the to the to the camp or prison or whatever you want to call it, and then uh, we got a message that he's actually alive. So we really didn't know much about each other until those that uh, run the army decided that we should be reunited and. Uh, that I should be given this opportunity to visit him, obviously under some conditions that this could be filmed for propaganda purposes. Everything done in war is propaganda. So yeah, in short, that's, that's how, how the visit happened. And it lasted for a few minutes, really. Yeah. And after that happened, you wrote a letter to, was it sent to? To Sasha? Or no, to the letter I, I wrote was uh, a few weeks after, maybe even a month after. I, I wrote a letter to Zrinka, the friend, friend who was in Sarajevo during the siege for a good part of it and who just left for London. And uh, I, I wrote a letter to her. And then when Sasha visited her in London, he actually read the letter. Right. Part of what is um, really striking about uh, the essay that then Sasha eventually wrote is that you see the way that 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 war ripples out. You know, you're back in Sarajevo. Your father's in prison. Sasha is in Chicago mostly, and then in in London at this particular time. But um, far away. But in some ways, I mean, feeling as trapped by the war as if you know. In some, I mean, Sasha, my sense reading it was that in some ways there's a part of you that thought you should be back there, and there's a guilt 
that comes from being away. Um, is that describe some of your feelings then? Well, it does. I mean, the guilt was not general, but it was particular because, you know, um, my family had left Sarajevo, but I had friends and, and neighbors who stayed, including Weber, who lived um, across the street from, from each other. Um, and so the fact that I somehow got out and that he was under siege and that, you know, um, he could be killed, therefore, easily, people dying every day, um, made me feel, it's not a simple kind of guilt. It's not, I didn't think that he would want me to be there. Uh, and he might have said, as much. It was rather that, um, you know, I, I had a good luck not to be there and, and also had a good luck to make a choice, which is really theoretical, but it was a choice still, that I, I could decide to go back there at some early in the war and I decided not to even try to do that. And whether I would have succeeded getting back in the city if I had decided to do so, it's, you know, it's anyone's guess, but I made a decision to stay uh, and, and therefore, this moment of agency where I could choose this or that, at least theoretically, was something that was never afforded to him. Um, and so this um, made me feel, uh, again, it's not simple guilt, it was rather that um, it separated us, the way that siege separates people. Our lives bifurcated, so he lived under siege, whereas I lived a life of choices, minimum wage choices, but still choices. Um, and so there was something that I wonder if you could ever, it would, if it, we would ever reach the point where we could talk about it. Right. And you know, because at, our, at that time, as it were, our lives were not comparable at all. And if they stayed incomparable to each other, then that's, there's nothing to talk about. When did, oh, go ahead. No, that's it. I, I, when did you first see each other after the war? Well, my first trip uh, out of Sarajevo was actually to fly to Chicago and visit Sasha. And it was January '97, I think. And Later, uh, yeah. yeah, January, February '97. It was uh, brutally cold <laughs> in Chicago, but that was the first time uh, we actually saw each other and, and had an opportunity to talk. I mean, we had a few phone conversations before, but it was the first time we actually got together. Spent some time. But he, his wife was expecting, and so we were assigned the task of uh, buying um, clothes for her and, and her pregnancy. And so we walk into uh, maternity stores and say, We're expecting. And so then we would try all these things. So just, I would sit there and read Sports Illustrated like a proper husband. And he, he would pick a dress and say, What do you think? I said, Take it, it's good. And then Zrinka arrived four days later and returned everything we bought together <laughs> to the same store and bought the proper stuff. Mm. When you were reunited, did you talk about the previous six years or did you just move on at first? Well, first we had to, he had to fill me in on what happened in the soccer world uh, during the siege because for those few years I was a little bit out of touch. But then obviously we, I don't remember exactly our, our, our conversation, talk. but I think we talked about everything. We talked, there was a lot of catching up, I remember this. Um, there was a lot of whiskey too, I remember. So some details are murky. But there was catching up, and it was, I remember he would tell these stories from the war. I, um, I mean, I knew some of the things because of the letters and what the news and stories that filtered to me in various ways, vicariously. But then, you know, um, all I know about war really is from his stories. And many of them were told to me at that time. And so then it's, it's years later, if I'm, it, is it around 2012 or so that you begin to work on My Prisoner? 
Yeah, I have a, len a lengthy answer to that. I, uh, you know, the way I see it, I, I like to tell this story as short as possible. In 1984, I was a teenager. Sarajevo was hosting the Winter Olympic Games. So life was beautiful. At least that's how we saw it. And then, uh, and really the future was not much of our concern. Fast forward 10 years, I already have two years like war veteran experience. I was in the middle of the siege. Uh, you know, the whole world as we knew it before the war collapsed and disappeared. Fast forward 10 years, I already have five years experience as an engineer in Bombardier Aerospace some faraway Canada, which I knew really nothing about. And then fast forward another 10 years, I have a, you know, a Master of Fine Arts degree and I, and I, and I, and I, and I'm an artist. All this to say, so much fits into one's life. So it's, it's really hard to remember things and you don't really often don't have time to think about things. So, so much happened after the war, you know, immigration, settling in, uh, new jobs, uh, children, family, that I never had time to really think about war much. And then uh, when, I, when I started to do uh, the masters in, in, uh, in fine arts, all of a sudden, I started thinking about things back. And then I remembered this, this particular moment where, where, or particular event when, when I went to visit my father and remembered that it was uh, recorded on camera. So I, I got in touch with someone in Sarajevo and tried to get the, the, this footage, but just mo more out of curiosity than to really turn it into any kind of project. And I had this particular memory of me and my father standing and the guy in, in between us uh, doing an interview with us. And I even remember his name, Zvonko Maric, and I, 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 I remember it all. It's, it's like clear picture. But then once I, and I even contacted this Zvonko Maric through some links in Sarajevo, and he says, yeah, I have this footage in my personal archive. So he sent it to me. But then I called my father and I said, you know who I got in touch with? Uh, Zvonko Maric. And he was like, who's Zvonko Maric? I said, well, you know, the journalist who was interviewing us uh, during the, my visit. And he says, I was interviewed by a woman. I was, I don't know who Zvonko Maric is. And I don't know who were you interviewed by because they separated us after, after we met. And so, so he kind of really put into question all my memories about the event. And that, that's when I decided to, to actually work, uh, work on it as a, as a project. But it's also important to note in this whole story that the letter, he sent a letter that we read in London, um, uh, and this is what the essay begins with in many ways, uh, describing this event. But he wouldn't read this letter until he started thinking about this. In the letter, um, he t you, talk, you talk about a woman. And so it was, it was both not, um, remembering but also not wanting to remember there was it's a, obviously a very difficult difficult thing to remember and to return to and so to return to it by way of a video is you know um it, it was interesting to me this is why I, I i had known this story and i keep this letter and many have many copies of this letter uh, photocopies which i read which is one of the most beautiful pieces of writing i've ever read and it was so Powerful um, and imminent and immediate, rather. Um, but I and I, I could never write it about it because it was his story. Um, it's, it wasn't mine to tell. I would tell people these stories, those who didn't know. But once he started working on the video, 
I, I, I asked for permission to, to write about this. And then when you were writing your essay, did you show drafts to Weber? Did you talk yeah. to him again? And yeah, I, I sent him. He was, I mean, I f f uh, checked my facts and sent him drafts. I don't work to dramatically different drafts. So, you know, early drafts are not much different than late drafts, uh, right. generally speaking. Particularly with something that it, the story is already outlined. It's not for me to make up stuff and, and change what happened. Uh, and then I was quoting excessively from his letter. So, um, so I did, I did run, run it by him often. He was, and reported to him where I was at and how difficult it was to, uh, to write it. For me, never mind for him. Did you hesitate at all, Weber? Were you taken aback? Did you think, oh, I don't know if I want you to tell this story? Did you hesitate to tell your own story? I no, because it was Sasha, you know, because, you know, we had the history and, you know, we've been friends forever. So I guess if somebody else approached me to talk about it, uh, it would probably be very different and probably wouldn't happen at all. And uh, yeah, so there was not much hesitation. It was just one of one of many <laughs> conversations that we had. Right. Well, the essay is is beautiful and and um, quite moving. And in the the new edition, the ebook, um, you can read the essay. And in the essay, you talk about uh, the art project, um, which is a video installation. Um, but then you can actually sit down and watch the video. And we have, I think, um, a shorter version. There's, it's, it's, is it fair to say it's still a work in progress? The, or have you finished the longer version now? No, well, I did this, this project in, in, uh, in kind of two steps. Uh, what is part of the ebook was done in 2011, 12, and uh, it was my first, my first interaction with the footage. The thing is, when I, when I, uh, when this was shot and when I was working on this, I really, I didn't see, because uh, the strategy I took, I did not, once I spoke with my father and who put in question all my memories and remembering of the event, I, uh, I didn't want to watch footage until I record all my memories on paper. So when this was shot, it was actually somebody projecting an image over me and I, all I could see is the source of the image of the projector. I really didn't know what's on camera and what's being filmed. I mean, I had an idea, but uh, I didn't see it. So that was then, and, and at that point, I was really kind of fascinating with this, with this disc that arrived at my address, with this record of my experience, and, and I was wondering, you know, the, the whole project was exploration of how, how images influence our memory, and what's gonna happen once I see this, this footage? Is it, am I gonna remember what I truly experienced, what I remembered before seeing it, or all of a sudden my memory is going to become this recording. So that was the then. But then at one point my focus shifted from what I could not remember to something that I really remember vividly but was never recorded. And that was, uh, that was the day that led to this visit when, when they were taking me to, to, uh, to see my father. So there was... Uh, there was another work that I did recently last year that was uh, a kind of a, a video works that that's a composite of contemporary reimagining of situation and uh, and uh, the archival footage. In case um, it's not uh, totally clear, what you're seeing is uh, obviously that's Weber standing uh, at the front there and filming himself 
with a projection of the footage um, from the reunion with his father behind him. And what's amazing about the video, one of the things about it, is that there are these moments, these visual moments, that, that seem to get at um, some truth about not only what happened then, but what is happening now in a sense. And, and Sasha, you describe uh, one of these moments in the essay, uh, I believe, where you s see um, Veva's father's hands reaching around and trying to, you know, and holding you at the time, and it's projected onto you now. And more than anything else I can think of, you, you, you've experienced both the distance and the intimacy at the same time. Well, uh, when he was finished with this particular work, it was exhibited in a gallery in Montreal for the first time. It's part of his graduate exhibition, I think, uh, or the, the university graduate exhibition. So I flew in with my daughter, who was five at the time, to, uh, to see it. I mean, I had seen it on video, but I won't see it in the gallery. I saw it on a computer. And so there was, you know, it was in the next room in the gallery, um, there was a, it was interesting in, in its own right, there was a woman who, who dated a large number of men and posted their pictures and part of installation was her lying in bed half naked. Um, next to this is very surreal, as galleries often are, that's what art is. Um, but I was, my daughter was five and so, you know, she knows that I'm from Bosnia and she knows that there was some war, but the whole notion of war is complicated for her still and let alone the political situation 20 years ago in, in the Balkans. She doesn't even know what the Balkans is. Uh, and so to have her see this and then try to explain, I didn't explain it on, on the spot, obviously, but it, it's a, I realized that there's going to be a lot of explaining, that a lot of life, Uncle Weber's life, but then my life and this whole life that we brought with us to the, to the new continent, a lot of it is in this video. There's, you know, I will have to spend a lot of time footnoting this footage. This is before the longer project uh, that he did. And this, um, it is also because this, this work is, and the whole story is about a love between a, a parent and a child in, in a very, very complicated circumstances and, and um, restoring the conditions of that love despite the war and separation, all this thing. I, I could see how that would, um, how I would footnote it for my daughter as the time passed, that someday she would look at it uh, and maybe understand something about, not only about Uncle Weber and his life, but also about us. And that's what art does. It sort of, it, it starts with, from a very personal space and then it expands outwards. It is extremely personal until it becomes, until it starts mattering to other people. First in the first closed circle and then, and then beyond that. That gets to one of the, the questions that, that popped into my head after I watched the video and had read the essay, which is, I got a lot out of it uh, as a reader, as a viewer, thinking about it. Um, but then I started to wonder what the experience is like for each of you. Um, once, you've, once you've finished it, once you've made it, does that experience change you at all? Does it change how you think of that experience or relate to it? Or, is, or do you have a total distance from it as an artist? Well, I obviously can't have a total distance from it, but I, I have to say uh, it's, uh, it's, it's work. And once it became work, it, uh, I saw it very differently. There is some kind of distance created that uh, 
that I really embrace very much. And it's, it's when I watch this or, or other material that from this, this footage, it's, uh, it is in a way as, as if I'm watching someone else. You know, a, a, as I said before, so much happens in, in, in one's life and so much happened in my life that I really see, you know, these previous lives going on. But uh, so there is, there, is a, there is a big distance, though, yeah, there is no way of uh, distancing yourself totally from, from this kind of imaging. I mean, I was always distant because it didn't happen to me, and also it happened in a different place when it was happening from where I was. Where I was, but this is the, you know, what I like about writing is that when you when I write a story, true or untrue, you not only um, is it is it simultaneous distancing and also absorption of it. It is that I understood it as I was writing it in a way that it was not available to me when. I was only thinking about it or telling someone else or when he was telling me because you have to, um, <laughs> you remember once I was writing it and I started weeping. I mean, I had known the story. This, this happened more than 20 years ago. So I wrote it two years ago. So 20 years later, and I had not cried over this ever before. I just started weeping and I was texting him. He asked me, what are you doing? And I said, I'm weeping. Um, and he said, why? I said, well, you know. There's this thing, there's the war thing, the whole thing. It was some kind of vague answer that was perfectly understandable. Um, because it suddenly, it, it entered me in a way that um, it could not have happened before that. This is what writing, it's partly because it's language, it's both internalizing and externalizing experience simultaneously. And that's the, the exhilaration and the pain of it simultaneously. Well, part of what is powerful about the, the video is that the video itself, the original footage, was made, like you said, Weber, it was propaganda. It was somebody wanted to tell your story for, for their ends. They wanted to, to tell it in a particular way and, and broadcast it to people so that it would mean a very particular thing, which was actually not at all what it meant to you or what the real situation was. And there's a, a way in which watching it, you feel like it has been, the story has been reclaimed. You've sort of taken it back and, 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 and shown the truth of, of what it was. I, I don't know if it, how conscious of, uh, you were of you know, when you were working on it that that's what you were doing, but that's certainly how it felt. Well, when I, was, when I, when I started writing about it at first, you know, I said, you know, I want to I do this, this work that's going to be my script not somebody else's script. But I have to say one thing, it was beautifully filmed. This archival footage, whoever cameraman was, it was really beautifully done. And uh, yeah, so uh, it is in a way reclaiming it, but you know, because it's, its initial purpose 20 years ago, uh, it was so long ago, I really don't think of it. and. Uh, you know, for me, this, this, this footage has one purpose right now. Yeah. Well, I want to give uh, the audience a chance to ask uh, both of you questions, if they have any. Hi, and thank you very much for uh, presenting your story tonight. Uh, I very much look forward to reading the actual essay. Uh, this question is for Weber. So when you finally ended up watching the video, uh, whose memory was the correct one, or did it turn out that it was a little bit of both? 
Well, actually, uh, it turned out that my memory of the... Because the, 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 the or original footage has two parts. One is what you just saw, like this meeting of me and my father in a room. But then there's the whole other part where they were interviewing us. And I was interviewed by a woman. Uh, so my, my memory of that particular interview was really constructed from various elements. Uh, I obviously did this guy that I uh, imagined was interviewing us. He was probably present as a, some kind of producer or part of the crew, but uh, he wasn't interviewing us. Me and my father were not interviewed together, so my father remembered it much better than I did. It's a funny way that memory works, that it absorbs images from elsewhere and then creates its own narrative. This is, you know, um, in terms of writing memoirs that are supposed to be... Um, proof protected from any kind of distortion it's very difficult but it's also that in this particular case and many others it's precisely this distortion that generates narration without it if it were correct there would be no story so to speak or it would be at least subst a substantially different story well i read the read the nice theory that uh, you know the, your, the memory is always complete that, that we really contain all the memory traces of everything that happened to us. It's just the problem comes when you try to retrieve that memory. And then it, like, this is kind of, a, it's called episodic memory, where you, which is really made of many parts from all your knowledge that you have, from the feelings that you feel, and, and, and really these memory traces. So it's, it's, it's really constructed sometimes in unpredictable ways. And, and uh, one gets the sense, too, both watching and reading, that, you know, really it's only through work as extensive and, and complicated and as thoughtful as this that you're going to get anywhere near the truth of what happened. Um, I, in the essay, Sasha, at one point you talk about, you know, living in Chicago, people, when they hear your voice, they ask where you're from, and, and first you would say Bosnia, and then, of course, they would say, so what's going on there? And eventually, you started to say Luxembourg, just so people wouldn't ask anymore. Because not, you know, because you didn't. There was no way to explain to them everything that was happening. Well, there was a way to explain it, but they were not ready for all that. They, uh, there was, it was small talk at parties. This was the time of the war. They wanted, you know, three sentences or less before they refilled a cup with, with wine to tell them what was going on in Bosnia. And what was going on in Bosnia was everything that was going on in my life. And so I couldn't really do it for everyone every time, and you know. I, so I started telling people I was from Luxembourg, because I thought, you know, they might have heard of Luxembourg, such a familiar name, but no one really knows where it is, and what maybe, they do. Maybe there. you are from Luxembourg. But maybe, maybe you I remember. It's, it's never too late. It's, once I have enough money for laundering, I'm, I'll be from Luxembourg. Uh, but it's too early for that. Thank you for coming. I wanted to ask you, is there sound in the video, you know, in the final installation piece? Did you use sound? And if so, is it, is it sound or is it language? And what language? And are those things that you're thinking about? Yeah, in the final piece that was done last year, uh, sound is actually maybe even the most important. Uh, element of the of the of the work, because uh, what I was doing, uh, there was this particular moment when they were taking me to visit my father. So I was on the back seat of a car with a with an army intelligence officer, mm -hmm. 
and uh, so we were we started. It was about 20 minutes drive to to get to where they're gonna where they organize that I meet my father. So, and in the war, especially during the war, on the radio stations, they really play terrible music, folk music, patriotic songs, whatever. But then, uh, and I was heavily drugged because it was a very traumatic day. And uh, so we were sitting on this back seat of a car and the car is moving through these woods, woods uh, on this small road and it took me about half a minute to realize that it is Shine on You Crazy Diamond by Pink Floyd uh, playing on the radio. So it was really a surreal moment and then I turned around just to break this, the, this sound and then I, I told to the, to the silence and told to, to uh, the, the officer, I said, good music. And he turned to me and says, yeah, Jean-Michel Jarre. And I mean, I don't know how many of you know about Jean-Michel Jarre. It was uh, don't bother. Huh? Yeah, don't bother. But it it was it was it was the moment. So I wanted to recreate this scene, but uh, so the sound became very important, even though the song is not playing in the car uh, in in this final video work. But also the sound from the footage, from the archival footage, is present in this in this new version, and it is I found it maybe the crucial element in the works. Hi, uh, my question's for Sasha, and uh, I just wanted to know how um, the, your, your retelling uh, of, this, of this time period in your life in uh, Nowhere Man and Lazarus Project, and how the, how the landscape of Chicago really influenced your memories and emotions, just kind of the isolation that that city and the bitter cold it already has, and how you feel it might have been different if maybe you had landed somewhere in, say, Miami? Um, I would be more suntanned, I suppose. But, um, I don't know. It's hard to imagine. It's, it's very hard to imagine alternative paths to your life. I mean, it's not hard if you're a writer. That's all I do every day. That's my office job. Um, but I haven't particularly <laughs> imagined it in Miami. But it would have been interesting. There is something about Chicago. It's not just the weather which creates a particular kind of solidarity uh, and a sense that you know that you are standing against the elements, and there's also a history of immigrants coming through. And then the neighborhood I lived in, and still live really in living in Chicago. I moved there before the, a wave of Bosnian refugees moved into the same neighborhood. They followed me like a shadow, and when um, they um, got a hold of themselves enough to move to a different neighborhood, there was another wave of refugees. There were uh, refugees from Ru Rwanda and Burundi, and then there were Ethiopians, and then there were Somalis. Now it's a little too expensive for refugees. They go elsewhere, but for a long while, there's still residues of these waves of refugees in this neighborhood. And so, you know, the, the, it is in, it's one of those American cities where people from elsewhere come in large numbers, not just individual immigrants, you know, who get jobs, but whole communities move. And so to me, that is, you know, I, I suppose people like that do not end up in South Beach unless they work in a hotel. You know, they're not convened um, on the beach and do not um, practice silicon implantation, generally speaking. So there was, it was a natural environment for me. I didn't pick it for that. But once I recognized it all around me in various ways, it was it is the environment in which I still, still, still operate in many ways. There are not that many refugees, for whatever reason, as there were in the 90s. Um, but it, it is, um, I could think through it 
as it were, not just about myself. So it was an isolation, but you could see all these other people who were isolated in a similar way, including Bosnians. And then we found one another in various, uh, by using various pathways and, and talked about it. So, so now I'm no longer isolated in Chicago. Hi, um, thank you very much that you are with us today. I would like to ask about the title. How did you come up with My Prisoner? And maybe what did you talk when you actually met your father? Did you talk or it was just hugging? It was more like a dance. There was not really much intelligent conversation back there. It was like he was repeating my name. Uh, and then at one point he, he managed to ask me how is because how is my mother and my brother because he really didn't know anything about us if even we were alive. So uh, there was really no conversation as such and uh, and uh, like if you, if you, if you watch video, you know uh, I, I lit a cigarette before he walked in and we separated that cigarette was still burning so we had three minutes together so uh, and the video is a little bit slowed down so we didn't spend much time uh, neither we talked much uh, so for the title I uh, I actually watched a film uh, that I think it was uh, a son of a famous architect uh, was it Khan yeah Louis Khan I think yeah and and, and his uh, his title of his film was my architect and it was a fascinating story as well, very different, but but fascinating. And uh, and I, I I like that somehow. And it, it it really that's where the first my prisoner clicked in. I also worked for me because when I you know entitled my piece my prisoner, then it there had two prisoners. <laughs> it was a two for two for one. Yeah. When you I, I know we'll. To, I'll say this very quickly. Your essay, it begins with you in that basement, damp basement, and reading it. I mean, the, the sense that I got from the title was that, I mean, there's just layers of imprisonment, different kinds. What, where your father, the kind of well, imprisonment he was he was technically was, my prisoner. Yes. You know, he was a prisoner of the army that I was part of. But the, it, it, I mean, it's, again, I mean, it, the essay is really, I mean, if I had to say in one word what it's about, which is not, it's not enough words, but I would say it's an essay about war. And one of the effects that war seems to have is that it, Im it imprisons everyone that it affects in, in one way or another. Um, Hi, hello. Uh, my question is for both of you. Um, I would like to know what Sarajevo means to you at this moment of your life, besides it being your hometown and memories. Um, how it continues to inspire you um, after living so many years abroad. How, how you like, connect with it. Thank you. Um, well, I am very fond and attached to the city. It's a different city. And uh, the world and the friends who live in it are, are different. It's, it's, everything is different. But I, um, um, in the, I don't live there anymore. But I go often and I work with people there. I write in Bosnian. And I'm fully privy to the way it is now. I really don't feel much nostalgia. Um, I don't because I've re reconnected with the city as it is now. It's not good. I mean, life there. It's complicated. There's crime. There's poverty. It's polluted. Uh, government is corrupted. Everything. 
But there are people there who are um, have been my friends for 30 years or, or, or more even, uh, and or less. And there are people who uh, I love, but who I also admire because in, they do incredible th things in, in such circumstances. To make a, a film in Sarajevo, it's an incredible endeavor because everything is against you. Or to just basic operations. And there are people who find uh, gumption and strength and spirit to work in those circumstances. And they are, they are entirely and eternally in, in, inspiring to me. And it's fun too. Um, I mean, when I meet those people, there's a fun, funny people. I love going there. Well, for me, I, I, I guess if I say every opportunity I have to go back, I go back. Plus, my brother lives there, my my parents live there, and numerous friends. And yeah, it's uh, it's part of my life. Well, we have to go because there's another event right after this one. But I want to thank you all for coming. I want to thank uh, the Apple Store for having us, and, and most of all, I want to thank Sasha and, and Veba. Also, yeah, the, bu the book, it, it's, uh, you can get it on iTunes, and really, in all sincerity, it's an incredibly moving piece of work, both the essay and the video and the, and the way they come together. So do check it out, and, and thanks again. <laughs>